0: listening to the White Oak Houston podcast, the official podcast of White Oak Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. White Oak exists to help people come alive to the wonder of the gospel and fully follow Jesus. For more information, please visit us online at whiteoachurch.net. Uh, Again, welcome you guys here. I'm so glad that you have chosen to worship with us. I'm excited about opening up this story. I'm excited about a, a new series this morning, which we'll get into here in a second. But I'm glad that you are here. And I hope that you have come expecting God to speak to you. God speaks to us any anytime that we open up his word, and I'm excited to, to get into the story which will unfold here throughout the sermon. But before we start, uh, I just wanted to share, if you don't know me very well, my name is James Jandel. I'm one of the pastors at the church, and uh, I grew up here in Houston, and, and growing up, uh, one of the most vivid memories that I have is of my mom reading over me. This is her day, it's her birthday, so I'm going to praise her a lot this morning. But uh, this is one of the most vivid memories I have of her, is her reading to me when I was young. I don't remember many things from my childhood. It was a good childhood. I didn't block it out or anything like that. But I just don't remember very much from it. It's just a black hole almost, but I do remember that. I remember uh, her reading to us, and so I had this visual of uh, my older brother, younger sister, and I in the room that I shared with my brother, uh, and and the lights are dim, and she's reading to us, right? And so she's reading uh, Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Robinson Crusoe, Wind in the Willows, uh, Aesop's Fables, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, you name it. She read it to us, and I had this memory imprinted into my mind, and I used to love the stories. And I love the stories because I felt like I could identify with the characters, right? You read a story, you go on adventures with them. You learn from them. You see yourself in their story. They triumph and they fail and you see yourself in those things. I used to love that growing up, not only reading but being read too. But then you know that you get older and you begin to go to school and you read less stories and you start reading more Textbooks. Amen. I remember there was an assignment I had one time where literally the assignment was a packet of a hundred vocabulary words and you had to open up the textbook, go to the glossary and write down the words verbatim. Does anyone have an assignment like this before? Some of us had to do that. Literally, that's what you had to do. You turned it in and that was the assignment. And I guess the teacher thought that by writing down all the definitions, I would have learned all those words, and I know a hundred new words now, and so learning over time for me became less about self-discovery and more about memorization. I think even now, whenever I go to the news, I love reading the news, but I hate reading the news story. I just go to the headlines, right? I look at the headlines, I get the gist of it, and then I move on. I don't like to take the time to spend in the story. And, and I don't know what it is, maybe it's our culture, our bottom line culture, maybe it's our school conditioning, but whatever it is, I, I feel like we read less stories and we're more about the facts, right? We love facts, we love truth. We feel like once we know the truth, we can take that and apply it to any situation in our life. I know the truth, I can apply it here, I can apply it here, I can apply it here. And that's why we love cliches so much, because cliches make life less complicated, They make it seem simple. But stories aren't like that. And I would argue that life is not like that. In stories, there are twists and turns, right? Stories unfold over time. In stories, you have a character who is deeply flawed. He's not a perfect character, he's got flaws, he's got strengths, he's got weaknesses. He, he goes through things, and sometimes he fails, and sometimes he learns through those failures. Sometimes he doesn't, and he fails again. That's how stories go. And I believe this morning, as we open up this story, and as we're going to be in this story over the next few weeks, that if you can learn to appreciate stories and to learn from them, then you can learn and appreciate the fact that you are in a story. And that God is writing the story and you are writing the story and you can learn from that. When you begin to appreciate stories, you begin to appreciate that you're in the middle of one. That you are a deeply flawed character. We are deeply flawed characters. We're not perfect. You have strengths. You have weaknesses, just as I do. When you begin to see your life as a story, you can recognize that your life is not defined by a single success or by a single failure. But then instead that you are a work in progress and that your life is defined by the author of the story. I think that God uses stories in the Bible to help us see and discern what's happening in our own story. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be learning about the life of King David King David, the poet, shepherd, king, famous King David from the Bible. That's the story that we're going to be in. And what I I love about David, and I feel like if I were to title David's story something, I would title it anointed mess. David was a real man living in a real time and place with real problems. David was an anointed mess. Right? On the one hand, you have David, this man that God chose to be the king over a nation. And on the other hand, he cheated on his wife. On the one hand, David wrote the Psalms, the greatest work, the greatest expression of humanity the world has ever known. And on the other hand, he abused his power several times. David was an unpolished person. David was a flawed character. And so the question is, what do you do with David? Do you love him or do you hate him? Do you praise him or do you criticize him? I would argue this morning that you learn from him. And you see your own life in his story and you learn with him. I think a lot of times we use Jesus as the only example that we look to. And don't get me wrong, Jesus is a good example to look to, right? He's perfect. The problem is, if you see Jesus just as your example and not as your savior, you're going to begin to develop a complex in which you say, I can never be like that. And guess what? Totally true. You will never be like Jesus. But when you look at David, David is more of a reflection of who we are. Flawed characters trying to follow God in a complicated world. David was an anointed mess, and in many ways, so are we. So I encourage you as we go through David's life over the next few weeks. Don't hate him, don't love him, don't praise him, don't criticize him, just learn from him. Be patient with him. David is gonna do some things over the next few weeks that are gonna make your blood boil. Right? David's gonna do stuff, you're gonna be like, God, why would you choose this guy? Kick him out. Be patient with him. Because God's patient with us, right? God is patient with us, and we have much to learn from someone like David. So if you go back to our passage here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to read those first three verses one more time just as a quick refresher before we move on, and it says this in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm going to send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons." And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. What I love about David's story is that it starts with a mess. And I think David's story reminds us that a lot of great stories begin with a mess. David's story began with a mess you have Israel right the people of God if you know anything about the Old Testament you know that Israel was the people of God God shows them to have a special relationship with him and so he calls them out of Egypt where they were enslaved and he, he sends them into the wilderness and he takes care of them and then ultimately he gives them their own land right And then they they have their own land and God says, I'm going to lead you, I'm going to take care of you. But the problem was, over time, Israel looked at the nations around them and they said, they've got earthly kings, we want a king. And God's very patient, he's like, guys, you got a king, me, right? I'm your king, I take care of you. And they said, no, 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 we want an earthly king. We want someone to go to the battle for us. We want a king. And God's like, God's a little hurt, right? And he says, well, okay, I'll give you a king. But guess what? It's not going to turn out well for you, but I'll give in. And so God anoints Saul as the first king. And when you think about it, being king over a nation is a pretty big job. I don't know if you've ever led anything, like whether it's a project at work or leading a family or leading a ministry at church or whatever it is. leading people is a hard thing. And Saul steps up and he says, I'm going to lead the nation. And so he begins to lead the nation. And it all starts out well and good. But over time, the monarchy gets corrupted. Saul gets more and more um, enthralled with the power that he has. He gets more and more resistant to God over time. And by the end of his life, Paul is a paranoid megalomaniac. He's obsessed with keeping his throne, right? He's obsessed with keeping the throne. And God says, I I projected you and I've come up with a new king. So you've got a nation in turmoil. You have a king who's paranoid, schizophrenic, obsessed with power. And in the midst of that, you have the wise old prophet, Samuel. I've heard Samuel described, he doesn't quite say this in the Bible, but I like to picture Samuel as this old prophet You know, he's got the gnarly cane. He's got the white beard, like, hanging down to the knees. Samuel is a man of God. And yet Samuel, in this story, as it opens, is he's on the ground with his head in his knees, and he's grieving. He's having a personal and spiritual crisis. God's prophet asking himself, what went wrong in Israel? you think about it, Samuel was the guy who anointed Saul as king. And you can imagine him sitting there saying, God, did I hear you right all those years ago? Was I supposed to anoint this man as king? Because it sure hasn't worked out how I thought it would work out. Samuel is in the midst of a personal crisis. Talk about putting yourself in the story. I wonder how many of you, and I put myself in there, have found yourself questioning God's call on your life. How many of you have asked yourself the question, God, are you still with me? God, did I mishear you all those years ago when you asked me to do this? Did I I hear you right or am I on the wrong track? That's exactly where Samuel was. And yet in the midst of all this, God calls out to him and he says, I'm doing a new work. Get up and go. You see, the beginning of David's story isn't even about David. It's about Samuel. This wise old prophet, this man who's walked with God for years and years and years. And and, and and you find him at the beginning of the story asking God, what happened? Samuel has got regret in his life. God is telling Samuel to get up and to go. And Samuel has his head between his knees asking God, why has this happened? How many of you have entered into a season of regret? Asking yourself, God, why has this happened? Maybe regretting something that you've done or something that you haven't done. But many times God finds us in seasons of regret, and God speaks into that regret, saying, Stop looking at the past. Arise, go. I have something new for you. Samuel, arise and go, for I'm doing something new. James, arise and go. I'm doing something new. White Oak, arise and go. I'm doing something new. I think also mixed in there with Samuel was not just regret, but maybe a little bit of nostalgia. Nostalgia is looking at the past and saying, man, the past was so much better than the present. And I think we all fall into this so many ways. Maybe you're in your 20s and you're looking back to those college days, right? Man, I loved the college days. I loved that time in my life. God, I would love to go back to that time in my life. God says, arise and go. I've got something new for you. Maybe you're in your 30s or 40s and you've got kids now and you're looking back saying, God, I wish I were back in a time in my life in which it wasn't so complicated, where I had more time to be myself, to enjoy things. God says, arise and go. You're in a new season of life. Maybe you're older. And you're looking back on when you're younger or looking back at a nation in in which you thought it was going much better or when you looked at the church and thought it was going better or your life and you thought it was going better and God says, arise, I'm doing something new. I think regret and nostalgia are so anti-gospel. Are so anti-gospel. Because the gospel is about what Jesus has done in the past. But it's primarily about your present and your future. God says, stop looking at the past and think about what I'm doing now. If you're in the midst of a mess, God is telling you to not focus so much on the mess, but on what he's doing next. That's exactly where Samuel was. Head in his knees thinking, God, what has happened? God says, get up and go. So the story continues. God tells this wise old prophet, I want you to anoint a new king. And so finally, Samuel musters up the courage to get up. He, he brushes his knees off, right? He gets up and he's about to take one step forward, and then he stops and he says, God, I'm really scared to go now. Now I've got fear because if I go, then Saul's going to kill me, right? Saul's going to kill me. And so it's good that he got up. It's good he's not in regret or nostalgia anymore, but he stops because he has fear. And it kind of makes sense, right? Saul is king. Saul is a paranoid leader. And it kind of makes sense that someone as famous as Samuel, this prophet of the land, anywhere he goes, Saul's going to know where he goes. So if Saul, so if Samuel goes and anoints a new king, then that means Saul's going to hear about it. Saul's going to kill him because Saul wants to protect the monarchy, right? So Samuel is afraid. How many of us in our own lives, as soon as God calls us to move forward, Are paralyzed by fear. But God's gracious. He doesn't rebuke Samuel. He doesn't yell at him. He says, Samuel, okay, I've got a plan for you. He says, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice a heifer. And and what that means is Samuel was gonna go and basically have a feast in the town of Bethlehem, where Jesse and the elders were at. So the idea here is that Jesse or that Samuel goes, has this feast. And everyone's going to be distracted by the feast while Samuel does the real work of anointing another king. So let's move on in our story a little bit here. In verse 4, we'll go through verse 6. It says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, saying, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So let's stop right there. So Samuel goes to the village. And the elders of the village, the leaders of the village, see him from afar. They see Samuel, right? He's got his prophet's garb on. He's got the gnarly cane. He's got the beard. They see him in a distance and they are petrified. Right? They're totally petrified. A man of God that eats with kings doesn't go to small towns. And if he's going to a small town, there is going to be trouble. Right? And so they're thinking in their mind, who sinned? Did someone sin in the town? Is he going to rain fire down on the town? What is this man going to do? And so they come out to him and they say, do you come in peace? And he says, I do. And this story reminds me so much of Jesus the one come from God who, who goes out into the world and people ask him, why are you here? Are you here to condemn us? And he said, no, I'm here to save you. Samuel answers, peaceably, I've come peaceably. So immediately the city turns from anxiety to festivity. They kill the heifer, the feast is prepared, there's music, there's dancing, there are events, everyone's swept up in the party, but Samuel knows why he's there. And so he calls Jesse's family to him, And they begin to parade in front of them. And Eliab, the firstborn son, is first. And uh, the Bible doesn't really talk about him in general or his characteristics. But I heard one commentary begin to create a story around Eliab. And he painted Eliab as a man's man. Right? He's a man's man. He's the firstborn of the family. And in Old Testament times, if you were the firstborn of the family, you inherited everything. Who in here is a firstborn male of their family? we got a few people. You get everything. Who in here is not a firstborn male of a family? We get nothing in Old Testament times. In their culture, you don't really get anything. And so you've got Eliab, the man's man, the dominant man, comes forward. And he's thinking, man, I inherit everything in the household. And if the prophet of God is coming to our town, it's going to be about me. So Eliab comes forward. He knows that Samuel has come and even Samuel is thinking in his mind in sort of a hopeful prayer, surely this is God's anointed. He looks like a king. He acts like a king. He's got a beard like a king. He speaks like a king. This is the king that God sent me to anoint. We'll pause there. I think we all know what happens at the end of the story. (laughs) But the irony is not lost on you, I'm sure. And I think the irony lies in the word surely. And maybe you in your translation, maybe it says something like, certainly this is the Lord's anointed. Maybe your translation says, this has got to be the man. And I think it shows us another lesson from the story. Don't assume what God is going to do. The minute you begin to assume what God is going to do, he's going to surprise you. When you begin to think that you have God in a box or you've figured out how he operates, God does almost the exact opposite because God is unorthodox. God is unconventional. God takes the way that you understand things and he flips them around on their head. In Isaiah 58, God says this, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. And then God sort of gets a sucker punch in here. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are my thoughts than your thoughts. So often, we think we have God figured out. You know who else had God figured out? The Pharisees and the Jews in Jesus' day. (laughs) They thought they knew how God was going to work and how he was going to operate. And when Jesus busts onto the scene, lowly carpenter, they missed it. They assumed they knew how God was going to work in their life. So often we assume how God is going to work. And here God defies all of our assumptions and all of our expectations. And if you take anything from this morning, know this, assumptions about God are dangerous. Assumptions about how God is going to use you in your life are dangerous. God does as he wills, and he'll surprise us. Let's move on to verse 7. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab, the other son, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So you get the scene, right? Samuel's come to anoint the king. It's going to be one of Jesse's sons. So he has all his sons parade before Samuel. And I imagine at this point, maybe the crowds are beginning to see what's happening over here and they're passing before Samuel. And Samuel's saying, not this one, not this one, not this one, not this one. Seven times, not this one. And we begin to see God speaking to Samuel, saying the criteria that the world uses to choose its people is not the criteria that God uses. Man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Not by appearance, not by height, not by stature, not by your ability to speak in front of a crowd, not by any of those things, not by money, not by looks, not by social status. People look at those things, but God's criteria is completely different. It's a weighty lesson that we see time and time again throughout the Bible God does not look for the best and brightest. He's looking for those humble enough to follow him. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, earlier on, in one of the encounters that God has with Saul, he says, I'm looking for a man, what, after my own heart. I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And it just reminds me that God watches us in the everyday things of life. Whether it's work, school, family, family, Job, ministry, God sees the normal, everyday things that we do that are often overlooked by other people. We know who the king is in the story. Obviously, spoiler alert, it's David. But you know where David's at right now? He's out tending the sheep. David is out doing his thing. In a very unloved job, a very unprestigious job, doing his thing. And what God is saying here so while everybody's focused on the Eliabs of the world, the Abinadabs of the world, the Shamas of the world, God is looking at those who are faithfully serving Him, where they're at. The Jewish rabbis used to say this back in the day: when God wishes to choose a leader, God looks to see how He tends sheep. In other words, will we be faithful in the places where God? has put us. So often, we're waiting for God to to put us in a a huge assignment, a, a big thing that we can do for him. And oftentimes, we do get that shot, and David gets that shot. But for so many years of his life, he's serving behind the scenes, being faithful where he's at, work, errands, kids, school, church. These are the places where greatness and humility are born. Greatness isn't doing great acts, but being faithful and carrying out the small task, even when no one is looking. That's where David's at. So let's finish the story here in verse 11. It says, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And we'll just stop right there. You can imagine Samuel's frustration, right? He's like, you've had seven sons. They passed before me. I know he's here. Where is he? You're hiding them. Are these not all your sons? Where is he at? And then Jesse, in some fatherly love right here, says, yeah, we got the youngest one, but he's out tending the sheep. (laughs) He's the black sheep of the family, right? And Samuel said to Jesse, go get him. We're not even going to sit down to eat until you go bring me that son. And so Jesse goes and gets to him, and he brings him in. And uh, there's an interesting point here. If you look in verse 12, it says, he was ruddy. And he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And uh, it kind of flies in the face a little bit with what God said earlier. It doesn't look at outward appearance. And you're thinking, man, David gets to be king. David is a good-looking guy. All this kind of stuff, right? I mean, does does God not look at outward appearance? But I think we have to understand the context a little bit here. Basically, what this is saying in his time is he's kind of a, a, a sissy boy in a lot of ways. Like he he has a beautiful, no no guy wants to have a beautiful face or beautiful eyes, right? We want to be the man's man. And yet the story contrasts David, this beautiful-eyed youth, with Eliab, the man's man. So David comes, he enters into the story, and then Samuel, and then the Lord says, arise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brother's. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I love this ending. (laughs) And the Jewish people who would have read this story originally would have loved this ending. Because in this ending, you have a father who doesn't even bother to invite his son to the feast. You have his brothers who think he's a total non-entity, a nobody, a loser. And they think that for the rest of his life, we're going to look at different stories and they're thinking, man, David's a loser. They tell him, go back home and tend to the sheep. And in the midst of all that, you have God speaking and saying, that's the one I choose. See, so often we think that the great work of God can only be done by great people of God by the priest, by the pastor, by the well-spoken person. And yet in the midst of all this, God says, I'm here choosing the nobodies. This story is intended to convey a sense of inclusion for every one of us who feels ordinary at times. To those who are undistinguished, to those who are unpolished, to those liking social status or peer recognition, David enters his own story unnamed. Literally, you don't hear David's name until the very end of the story, and it's almost like an afterthought. David was overlooked, and yet the Lord was watching. There's this dramatic ending to this story where the whole time you don't recognize or realize that it's going to be the shepherd boy out in the field, and then God says, that's the one that I choose. God is looking for the nobodies of the world to serve him. In the places in which they're found. David was chosen and anointed by God. Even before anyone else saw what was in him. So as we draw to a close this morning. I I just want to keep one sentence stuck in your mind. And it occurs in verse 13. And it says this. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. See, I think there's an irony in the story. The irony is that God knew why Samuel had come, and Samuel knew why Samuel had come, but no one else really knew why Samuel had come. Like, yeah, he's got this anointing that's happening, and there was this point in which David had oil poured over him, and that was a common thing they did back in the day to anoint someone with purpose. But unless Samuel whispered into David's ear what he was doing, David had no idea what was happening. There will be other times in David's life where we'll read where he really was coronated as the king. But right now, Saul's the king. And something has to change for that to change. And so I think the purpose of David's anointing is found right here in this verse. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. You see, before David could do great things for God, he had to recognize that God was with him. And so David had this visual reminder that God was with him. He said the Spirit rushed upon him. I don't know what season of life that you're in and I don't know what God is calling you to do in this next season of life but I do know that God has anointed you I like this idea of the spirit rushing upon him the spirit gripped him it means that in the future David could sin and David could stumble but he could not fail And in the same ways, you can sin and you can stumble, but by the Holy Spirit, you will not fail. And just as David was an anointed mess, I declare over you this morning you are an anointed mess. On the one hand, you're anointed by God for great things in life, to reflect Him in this world. But on the other hand, you're messy. life's messy and sin is messy and sometimes you follow God and sometimes you don't follow God you're an anointed mess and in the midst of that mess Jesus comes down says when you make a mess of things I'm not going to run away from you I'm going to run towards you the reality is that life is messy and as we go into David's life you're going to find that his life is messy things don't get better from here Sometimes they get better, sometimes they get worse. And in the same way, when you begin to follow Jesus, you don't become perfect, you're still a mess. But you know that God is with you. That's what David needed to know, and that's what you and I need to know today and for the rest of our lives. So I'm going to pray for us. And just as the Holy Spirit rushed upon David... I'm going to pray that God's Holy Spirit would be felt in your heart. The Bible says you already have him in Jesus. He already lives in you. But I pray that he might be felt, that you are not just a mess, that you're anointed by God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are precious in our sight. And even more than that, we know that we are precious in your sight Lord David's story was born in the midst of a mess and in many ways when we look at our country and the things going on in our world it feels like a mess I know personally speaking in many of our lives it feels like there's so much chaos, so much mess going on Lord in the middle of those things you are with us and you anoint us for good works. May your spirit be felt within us, Lord. May every person in this room feel very deeply the fact that you are with them, that you stay with them through the mess. We love you. We ask that you forgive us in the ways in which we fail you. and Lead us on into love and good works in this life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray.